Okay, uh, Kant's conception of colonialism, free trade, and cosmopolitical providence from the point of view of a history of ideas, their origins in Libanius, Francisco de Vitoria, and Hugo Cortius. In his perpetual piece, Kant takes a critical stance towards political colonialism. Nevertheless, he advocates the construction of a global community with equal legal standards. In order to achieve this community, he puts his hopes in the power of informal instead of political coercion. The informal coercion that Kant depicts comes mainly out of global economy and global discourse. To him, both phenomena have an unavoidable tendency to civilize the world, even against the will of the individuals or the individual states. This tendency can be understood in terms of a cosmopolitical providence. It is built upon the underlying belief in a providential design, which will lead inevitably to the construction of a global community. Concerning the question of colonialism, Kant's informal approach seems at first glance to be advanced. His conception endorses any form of local differences, economic and political. In the form of antagonisms and different needs, both kinds of differences are essential to the workings of the providential mechanism, as he puts it. But this concept's ability to combine the appreciation of differences with an all-inclusive universalistic point of view is not new. The spirit of commerce stems indirectly via Hugo Cotius from the Greek rhetorician Libanius who praises differences in the same breath as he subdues them to a universalistic, in the literal sense of the word, imperialist design. Likewise, Kant's endorsement of a global discourse can be seen as a secularization of the Christian concept of mission as formulated by Francisco de Vitoria, who legitimated the Castilian conquista by using the very argument Kant seems to renew. In the following, I recontextualize the two pillars of Kant's cosmopolitical providence and show the effects of this recontextualization on an interpretation of Kant. Francisco de Vitoria. On the surface, Kant's relationship to colonialism and to Vitoria is a negative one. In his attack on colonialism, Kant implicitly mentions a concept of the Dominican friar. He criticizes the inhospitable actions of the civilized and especially of the commercial state of our, uh, of our part of the world. The injustice which they show to lands and peoples they visit, which is equivalent to conquering them, is carried by them to terrifying lengths, he writes. He criticizes the fact that the enjoyment of a temporarily unlimited global right of hospitality and domicile cannot be distinguished from colonialism. As examples for such a, for such a colonialism that is legitimized by the right of hospitality, he mentions Africa and the East and West Indies. The conflict, or rather the alliance between colonialism and the right of hospitality that Kant depicts stems from Vittoria's Relectio de Indis Recenta Inventis of 1539, which deals with possible legitimizations of the Castilian conquista. In the first instance, just like Kant later, Vittoria strengthens local sovereignty against colonialist aspirations. This is why he got to be known as the founder of the law of peoples. In order to justify conquista, he also developed a global right of hospitality and free trade called Jus Communicationis. 
Vittoria's argumentation allowed the Spaniards who were in America to refer to their right of hospitality. If the Amerindians tried to expel the Spanish, the latter would be able to defend their right of hospitality by a bellum justum, a just war. In the lecture, it says, to keep certain people out of the city or province as being enemies or to expel them when already there are acts of war. If the Indian natives wish to prevent the Spaniards from enjoying any of their above-named rights under the law of nations, for instance, trade or other above-named matter, the Spaniards can defend themselves and do all that consists with their own safety, it being lawful to repel force by force. In Victoria's time, more simple forms of legitimization of colonialism were used, such as the donation of Constantine in the Recarimiento. In the early 17th century, however, in the work of the Dutchman Hugo Grotius, one can find a hint that, at least within the realm of theory, Vittoria's argument was employed. Grotius writes, Vittoria holds that if the Spaniards should be prohibited by the American Indians from traveling or residing among the latter, or if they should be prevented from sharing in those things which are common property under the law of nations or by custom, if, in short, if they should be barred from the practice of commerce, these causes might serve them as just grounds for war against the Indians. Proteus, in turn, has a rather concrete political reason to quote this passage. He uses Vittoria's argument in his legal opinion, the Jure Prede. It was his intention to employ this very argument against Spanish claims of a monopoly on trade. Taking Vittoria as his starting point, Croteus argued that the Dutch could wage a just war against the Spanish if they hindered them from trading freely. Grotius, however, the father of the legal principle of the freedom of the seas, restricted Vittoria's use communicationis to a mere temporarily limited right to trade, similar to Kant. In addition to Grotius, the topos of the right of hospitality was a common one to be discussed within the early modern debate on international law. Bartolome de las Casas, Domingo de Soto, and Samuel Pufendorf argued against it in the same manner as later did Kant. It is therefore not surprising that Kant also takes up the subject. In order to evaluate this contextualization for an interpretation of the perpetual peace, it is crucial to understand why the right of hospitality was such an important topos in that time. One answer to this includes the notion at the heart of Vittoria's use communicationis, the communicatio, which is derived from the Aristotelian anthropology of man as a zone politicon. Following the Thomist Aristotelian corporal view of political communities, it follows also to regard the whole society of man as one body, one corpus mysticum, as it says in Dante and Aquinas. A right to travel within this global body of mankind must have seemed natural to theorists of this school of thought. Communitas, community, was closely linked to communicatio, which signified communication in the broadest possible sense. This surely also plays a role in Kant. In fact, he uses the term corpus mysticum in order to describe the community of all reasonable subjects. But it, it doesn't fully explain how the typical intrusive aspect of the right of hospitality developed. 
a plausible candidate for this is the jus predicandi, the right to preach, which the innocent the fourth formulated in the 13th century. On the surface, innocent, like Victoria later, granted non-Christians the right to be the legitimate owners of their lands. But he also demanded that they admit Christian missionaries. If they failed to admit the priests, Christian rulers were allowed to punish non-Christians by leading a just war against them. Before Vittoria gave his lecture, the Indies in 1539, it was Innocent's argument that had foremost been used to justify conquista. One simply assumed that Amerindians would have expelled missionaries in order to legitimate the use of force against them. One finds this line of thought in John Mayer, Palacios Rubios, Matias de Paz, and Bartolomé de las Casas, but also in official documents such as the Leyes de Burgos of 1512. When Vittoria uses the right of hospitality in order to reach a balance between a superficial acknowledgement of extra-European sovereignty and a legitimization of conquest, he secularizes the argument of Innocent IV. The global community of believers, according to European standards, which the Jus Predicandi of Innocent wanted to achieve, is thus transformed into a global community under a law of peoples, according to European standards, which the Jus Communicationis guarantees. One understands immediately why the right of hospitality was such a fiercely discussed topic during the time of Vittoria and Croesus, and still was when Kant was writing. Being a secularization of the right of mission, the right of hospitality is not an end in itself, but rather it is a right that signifies the inclusive principle of a global community and is therefore its necessary condition. It was the eschatological aim of Christianity to achieve the global community that the right of hospitality made possible. Although Kant limits the right of hospitality, he keeps the construction. It is even of crucial importance to his concept. He perceives it as an instrument to achieve a global legal community and as the necessary condition of such a community. He writes, the right of hospitality was a condition of the possibility of seeking to communicate. In the English translation, this contains an obvious memory of Vittoria's use, communicationis. In German, Kant writes Verkehr, which is a clear translation of the term commercium that signifies all kinds of commerce and traffic and is often employed by Vittoria and his followers. For Kant, the global community that is founded on the right of hospitality serves in turn as a legitimization for a global law in general and the right of hospitality as Weltbürgerrecht in particular. Since the narrower or wider community of the peoples of the earth has developed so far that a violation of rights in one place is felt throughout the world, the idea of a law of world citizenship is no high-flown or exaggerated notion. Inasmuch as it naturally precedes global communication, the informal global community is also a logical precondition for Kant's transcendental principle of publicity, which regulates international treaties. Especially in the civilizing function, which grants, uh, Kant grants to global publicity, a secularized idea of mission is apparent. 
in the perpetual peace, there is therefore a strong connection between the right of hospitality, a global informal community, a global discourse, and a global legal community. This construction legitimates itself by reciprocal links between its parts. Without the underlying teleology of Christian mission, one cannot at all understand why a global community and a global discourse is a desirable thing in the first place. In fact, despite small episodes of entanglement, Kant speaks of a global community that is not neutral, but installed, driven, and dominated solely by Europeans. There's absolutely no reason why this hegemonic structure should be protected by a universal law. In fact, Kant himself is aware of this problem. He grants Japan and China the right to protect their territories from traffic with the Europeans. But this remains an episode within this larger universalistic design. The differences and antagonism which Kant endorses on the surface are not perceived as differences in themselves, to use Derrida's language, ends in themselves, to use the Kantian language, but rather means to an end differences that are meant to ultimately dissolve in the coming global community. In the meantime, they have to participate in the global discourse that is run by Europeans and conform to the European model of global law. For Kant, this model of law implies a republican contractual representative constitution of every political community, which in turn is essential to internal international negotiations and federations. Such a model of interaction is in danger of being deaf to the voices of families, tribes, neighborhood communities, social classes, or other interest groups. It fosters the installation of pseudo-representative elites or simply tunes out those voices which don't conform to its mode of communication. In fact, it is because of the principle of publicity why Kant describes revolution as illegitimate. Proteus and Libanius. Shortly after his treatment of the right of hospitality, Kant points out why a global community is inevitable in a providential scheme. Keeping in mind the insight so far, the strategic place of this passage clearly demands a concept that is ontologically strong enough to replace the Christian eschatology that justified mission. Kant finds it in an ontology of difference that links trade and nature and culminates in a providential design. Salt and iron were discovered, he writes. These were perhaps the first articles of commerce for the various people and were sought far and wide. In this way, a peaceful traffic among nations was established and thus understanding conventions and peaceable relations were established among the most distant peoples. According to Kant, Difference in nature brings about different needs, which brings about trade, which brings about traffic, which brings about international peaceable relations. All this has no normative aspect to him, but is rather meant in an empirical way. This is exactly why the argument is so strong. It is, however, not original, but corresponds to a few similar ones from Kant's time, among others Montesquieu's and Hume's. It was a known topos at the time, normally labeled as the du commerce hypothesis, the idea that trade sweetens human behavior. It is, however, obvious that Kant's version of the topos is particularly close to that of the Dutch lawyer Hugo Grotius. In Grotius' Mare Liberum, it says, 
God himself speaketh this in nature, seeing he will not have all those things whereof the life of man standeth in need to be sufficiently ministered by nature in all places, and also vouchsafeth some nations to excel others in arts. To what end are these things but that he would maintain human friendship by their mutual wants and plenty? Frotius wrote this paragraph, as later did Kant, to strengthen his version of Vittoria's use communicationis by a more illustrative argument. By doing so, Frotius seems to implicitly quote an author who is much older, the Greek rhetorician Libanius. Ever since the Latin translation of his text by the Dutchman Erasmus of Rotterdam, Libanius had been a part of the humanist canon. Proteus explicitly quotes him in other places. Concerning the due commerce hypothesis, it is therefore plausible that Coetius paraphrased the following passage. The creator of the universe did not accord all things to all parts of the earth, but he has divided his gifts among different countries so that people should have need one of the other in order that from their mutual dependence they should be led to maintain community together. Thus, he has brought commerce into existence as a means available to all the world of enjoying in common all things wherever they were produced. Because of the image of a sole creator God, this passage is sometimes mentioned as a proof for Christian influences in the text of the Stoic rhetorician Libanius. But this passage also clearly reflects the purely Stoic idea of dioikesis. According to this concept, there is a providential order inherent to the world. The reasonable creator God has distributed the pieces of the world like pieces of a puzzle which, with the perspective of a whole design in mind. Puzzle pieces which would, be, which would by themselves tend to move to their right places. The global trade of different goods in this way reflects the providential design of God who created goods differently. Not only etymologically, dioikesis and oikonomia, economy, were always linked to each other. This idea surely was important to Grotius and Kant, who both owe a great deal to the Stoa. Clearly, Kant reflects this kind of providentialism in the perpetual peace. But even more important is the concrete political context of this paragraph by Libanius. The passage quoted stems from a panegyric to the emperors Constance and Constantius II from around the year 344. In this historical period, the Roman Empire was cut in two, divided between Constance and Constantius II, who were both sons of Constantine the Great. According to the formal rules of the genre of the panegyric, Libanius tries to praise this desperate situation. The text is thus mainly occupied with euphemizing the breaking apart of the Roman Empire. Concerning both emperors, Libanius, for example, writes, the empire may be divided in space, but it is united in their mutual love. This is not so wrong considering the good relations between the brothers. The third son of Constantine the Great, however, had been killed in a struggle between the brothers only four years before. There are therefore speculations about how far this speech is merely ironic. To contemporaries who knew about the factual problems of the empire, Libanius' euphemization of its division may have seemed comic indeed. Obviously, it can surely not be understood as an appreciation of difference as such, or as an appreciation of the fact that there are different peoples. It is rather a tragic or tragic-comic attempt to save what is left to save of the unity that once was the disintegrated Roman Empire. In Kant, the situation is not much different. He inherits the teleological concept of a global community from the missionary approach and the providentialism from the Stoa. 
from Libanius in particular, he inherits the ability to euphemize real existing differences as forming part of a larger providential design. The differences he seems to endorse, in fact, only have value in as much as they can be of use in a larger global economic unity, especially since to him the larger unity which cosmopolitical providence produces lies in the future. Differences exist solely in the interim. Via this eschatological delay, future economic unity also justifies existing economic differences. Injustices concerning the unequal satisfaction of needs are conceived of as being harmonized in the end. In fact, uh, Kant doesn't say something about this harmonization in the end, but uh, since he, uh, he developed something like a passive citizenship for people who are economically not independent in the Gemeinspruch, uh, one uh, could see uh, a context that Kant also justifies economic differences by this uh, structure in the perpetual peace. Conclusion. Kant doesn't need to rely on political coercion as means to develop a global legal community. It is rather the informal sector that fulfills this function, global discourse and economy. In spite of the soft nature of this informal kind of power, the inevitable dynamics Kant asserts for it is ontologically strong. Kant grants it directly in nature and presents it as an empirical insight, not as normative demand. The Kantian concept of natural teleology as being merely a necessary illusion doesn't at all influence the crucial political significance of this providential idea. This is especially problematic because, as was shown, Kant's idea of a cosmopolitical providence owes much to Christian missionary eschatology and the imperial idea. His realist utopia is just more utopian than realist, and it's exactly utopian and even dystopian because it claims to be based upon empirical findings. This conception is post-colonial in as much as Kant promotes a cultural and economic colonialism instead of a political one.